Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome, everyone, to the second live episode of the Hidden History Happy Hour. Thank you so much. It is so great to have everyone here. My friend Alex Dean, cheers. Cheers. Our very special guest, Mike Cole, cheers. Cheers. Thank you so much. Uh, we are going to get right to Alex's story, but I have a couple of... I always say that. We're going to get right to the story, and then I do like five minutes in between. <laughs> but we are going to get right to the story because it's an amazing story. And by the way, as our listeners and viewers know, and there's many of you now, so thank you very much, we always try to drink a little something that might relate to our story. Some of us follow that. Some of us don't. I have some rum right here, Gosling's Rum, because guess what we're going to talk about? Pirates. And there is a very close friend of mine in the audience who looks like a pirate, so we might just bring him up. We'll see. Alex, explain your IPA, please. Uh, people drank beer at every stage in recorded history. Mike Cole, can you confirm that? Uh, yes, some version of beer. A lot of times when you're talking about wine in Could the be world, you're talking about beer. I, l- I love the academic qualification you have to give to say yes. <laughs> There's a footnote in yeah. there somewhere. Yes. Special thanks. Give it up for our host at the Vaughn Bar, Karin Vaughn. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us here. Also, special thanks to our sponsor, Blue Run Bourbon, which we are, thank you, give it up, which which we are not drinking tonight because it turns out it's actually illegal to open a bottle that you didn't buy in the bar and drink it. So I must, and you will all be my witness, the ceremonial turning over of the Blue Run. It might be the first Blue Run bottle in the UK. To my close friend, Alex Dean. Enjoy that at home. That's all we've got time for tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Good night, everybody. Listen, thank you so much. Many of you were in our live episode in Denver. Many of you are new here. It's so great to have you. Uh, With fewer than 20 episodes on the air on YouTube, on Spotify, on Stitcher, on Apple Podcasts. We are in the top 5% of podcasts in the world. So thank you very much for that. And to tell you how grateful we are for that, we have four, count them, four copies of Alex Dean's amazing book, Lessons from History, that we will be giving away tonight. And the result, the, the, uh, the successful contestants for the book will be people that answer correctly some questions that I'm going to think of while Alex is telling his story. <laughs> so that's going to work out really well. Okay. Um, look, thank you for being here. Thank you for being with us on this adventure. If you want to bring your friends on this adventure, which I would love to have, there's all these cards sitting around. Thank you to our great producer, Jeremy. Uh, Hidden History Happy Hour, you scan this, and uh, it goes directly to the subscription page. And uh, that would be a great way to, uh, to help us out. Now, uh, also thank you to all of our friends at Palantir Technologies who are here with us tonight. We know how valuable all your time is. We also know you need to get to dinner. So uh, we will be moving quickly. Uh, just to see how many of you have been listeners and viewers over all of our episodes, all 18 of them, I have four questions for you. I was going to delay this, but I'm just going to make them up on the spot. Right now. One, and there is internet service in here, so feel free to cheat. One, what was the name of the cannon 
in my hometown that was featured in our first episode. Oh, I know that one. Two, what television show were Mike Cole and I both involved with? Three, Alex, you do one. No. All right, fair. <laughs> Three, what? Oh, this is, I love this. You, you're going to feel bad you turned this down. On what topic in the history of the Hidden History Happy Hour has Alex Dean been most wrong? Mm. That's actually an open question mm. that's subject to debate, and there's therefore no right answer. There's mm. many well, options. Well, yes, that is true. And finally, we are sitting in the Von Bar in the Bowery in New York City. Thanks again. What has been seen in this building that is not actually alive but is floating around. It's kind of an easy one, but yeah, uh, that's one book. Somebody's got one book, and the first people that come up at the break and uh, and tell us the answer um, will get the books. And Alex, I think, will autograph them. And now, pirates, Alex, let's hear the story. Thank you very much, uh, Brian. I- I've taken to uh, telling listeners uh, uh, to the podcast when they can skip to to get past Brian's <laughs> introduction and we start talking Which history. our sponsors love when yeah, you do that, by uh, the way. Yeah, of yeah. course, there's a booze at the beginning. Um, 75 BC, the Cilician pirates are uh, very active off the coast of Anatolia, now southern Turkey, and they are uh, bad hombres. They are feared by people uh, all across uh, the civilized ancient world. And uh, their main shtick is kidnapping people and ransoming them back to their families. That's so modern-day kind of Colombia. Bread, uh, are you, okay, uh, <laughs> mildly racist. But um, in any case, uh, they are uh, very active in this, in this environment, and their favorite targets are yeah, wealthy people, obviously, and they, they like to go and, and grab Romans. And uh, so far, so normal. They uh, stop a ship. They take off uh, some no- some noblemen, uh, and those prominent amongst them is a young guy. They they figure is going to be good for some cash when they sell him back to his family. Bad luck for them. It is a young Julius Caesar. Oops. And uh, so, well before he comes to power, well before um, any of his later exploits through the Senate and, and in power, Caesar becomes a, a captive of, of the Cilicians, and. He is not a normal captive. Uh, first of all, uh, when they uh, uh, tell him that they're going to ransom him back to his family for 20 talents, which is a lot of money, he says, this is outrageous. How dare you ransom me for such a small amount of money? I refuse to be ransomed for anything less than 50 talents. You're, you're an embarrassment to the ransom profession. You know, what do you think you're doing? Go, go back and demand 50. I won't be ransomed for anything less. I mean, even you have two talents, Alex. Thank you very much. It's uh, very kind. Maybe that's the fifth question. What are the two talents? Um, and so, that, so first of all, he says that. Second of all, he organizes them in martial, vigorous games on the beach, organizing them into teams and demands that they compete against one another, and he vigorously joins in. He, he recites quite lengthy odes to them and then berates them if they're insufficiently appreciative of his recitations. This is not a normal captive. As they are larking around the fireside, he turns to them one day and says, you know, gosh, we're having such fun. You know, it's going to be really uh, sad when I come back and crucify the lot of you, isn't it? (laughs) And, uh, oh, how they laughed. So the money is raised, 50 talents is brought together, uh, Julius Caesar is released from captivity. Bear in mind, at this point, private citizen, no public office, uh, goes home, promptly raises a small army, comes back, uh, captures all of the Cilician pirates marches them down to the local Roman governor and has them imprisoned. 
at a lavish banquet with the governor, treating him appropriately, respectfully. The governor says to him, I'm not really sure that you can take this very far. It's all a bit awkward. You know you're uh, going red wedding right now, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yes, quite. It's all a bit awkward. I, I'd rather, although the governor gets out of this story fine, um, <laughs> I'd rather you just left it. You know, it could, it could start trouble for me. You're going to go back to Rome. I've got to stay here and rule things here in, here in uh, Anatolia. It's just, maybe we should just forget the whole thing. And so in a great example of cutting through red tape, uh, Caesar goes out of the, from the banquet, calls his guys together, goes down to the prison and crucifies a lot of them. Um, lesson of this happy story is, is that from time to time in life, and this may have some resonances with modern life, who knows, people make threats. And sometimes it's best not to try to pass them or to make excuses for what they've said or say when they said X, what they really <laughs> meant was Y. The safest thing in life very often is to take them at their word and take them at their words at their value and expect them to mean it. Hence my story, Caesar means it. See, now, Alex, I thought the lesson from that story was just keep your promises. I think it's a good news story, isn't it? Well, look, so... Is it Maya Angelou who says when people show you who they are, believe believe them? Yes, exactly. Thank you, Mike Cole. Mike uh, is the author of 10 published novels and two nonfiction history books about ancient Greek warfare, including The Bronze Lie. He's branching out into other areas. I can't wait to get your thoughts on this story, but I will say, as a 15-year veteran of the United States government and a six-year veteran of the University of California, I admire Caesar's ability to cut through the red tape. <laughs> and for our many listeners in the University of California, don't take that personally. Oh, no, take, no, 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 take, no, it, no. Personally. take it personally. Yeah. Mike okay. Cole, welcome. You're Thanks. one of our favorite prior guests. Yeah. Talk about the story. Talk about whatever you want. We love you here. So, uh, all right. So, and the thing is, I, I'm, I'm a little closer to the mic. I don't. I don't get invited to parties very often because I'm usually the guy who brings the mood down with facts. Um, so, this story has a little bit of a ring of uh, what we call a hagiography. Right? You have a famous person. We tell stories about that person to kind of. Bring them up, puff them up, right? So it's always important when you listen to stuff like this to take it with a little bit of grain of salt, right? Was this myth-making after Caesar's life to sort of define that story? But one of the things that I... Because people get very upset when I bring up these points. <laughs> I, I don't think that that means that you can't take inspiration from that story, right? Like the lesson of it is, is when someone is, is telling you something, right? And also the more important lesson, I think, of the story, the one that I love to take away, is that you never know who you're messing yes. with, right? And that, and that you should approach everybody with caution. I think that's a wonderful lesson of the story. <laughs> um, and I think, that, uh, I think that the other thing that is so amazing about it is that it shows, like what we think of piracy uh, as pirates of the Caribbean. We have this incredible 18th century bent on it. Arg. But the truth is, is that uh, in the ancient world, it was a force that absolutely dominated commerce oh, yeah. And, yeah, w- yeah. and often went hand in hand with it. So I love the fact that, uh, that we started off with the Julius And we know that St. Patrick himself was a pirate from, I mean, wasn't a pirate. We know that St. Patrick himself was captured by pirates from a prior episode. Yeah. But Mike, you, you are now uh, making a living, hopefully, um, <laughs> by... Uh, Writing, or I would actually say rewriting history. So Mike is a career uh, intelligence officer, New York City police officer, Coast Guard officer, and now a novelist. And you decided to tell the world what the myths are of ancient warfare. Why? Um, so, well, because the truth matters, right? Um, and also, I think that's, by the way, this is not a non-controversial position <laughs> in 2022. As a, as a, by the way, as an intelligence officer, since I have Palantir in the room, I have to sort of turn sideways to Palantir and say thanks. Yeah, uh, hey. this is this was my tool. 
this was my tool for most of my career until, until the NYPD couldn't afford it anymore. But, uh, but, it, it, but it's, it's, it's great to have you here, so thanks for that. Um, well, the truth matters, and the truth matters for a few reasons. Um, but the one that for me that really matters is this. Uh, Brian is specifically referring to my last book, The Bronze Lie, in which I take on this idea that the Spartans were the greatest warriors in history. And guess what? They're not, right? Um, like all Praetorianism, there are certainly uh, elite status warriors have elite status, but they're also human beings. And they make mistakes, and they get scared, and they surrender. And all you have to do is look at the sources and actually reckon with their actual record. But the reason I want to tell that story first and foremost is that when you turn people into bronze statues, mm-hmm. when you make them into heroes, it's inspiring, sure. But you lose the ability to identify with them. Um, I always say, like, I, I hate Lord of the Rings. And I say this as someone who's oh my God. been a fantasy novelist <laughs> for many, many years of my life. And I hate Lord of the Rings for one reason. Not Palantir, Is that Frodo Baggins is a character utterly without flaw. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with him, yeah, except yeah. maybe he's excessively earnest. And I want someone who is just as messed up as I am. I want someone who gets scared. I want someone who says stupid things. I want someone who fails. Because when I see someone like that, I think, wow. Because when they do do something heroic, and when they do achieve something, I think, oh, maybe I can too. I'm gonna yeah. just, I think that, that Frodo at the end of Lord of the Rings displays great frailty, and it's Sam, the underrated, quiet Saxon of the story who sees things through. Mm-hmm. After all the highfalutin Norman demonstrations from Frodo, <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the end, it's great. It's quiet Saxon Sam, hardworking plow horse that actually gets the job done. So it's uh, pretty I have cool. to say, Alex, say you've, you've just won the award for the most convoluted way to turn it around to your advantage in any of <laughs> no, our podcast that. episodes. It brings it back to British history well. But this is my point, is that, is that when we lionize the Spartans, you know, they, they only ate black bread, they slept on... You know, that's nice, great. You know, now we have no connection to them whatsoever. So when they actually do have amazing achievements, which they did, they had an extraordinary society... We're like, well, that's got nothing to do with me. You know, you don't identify with Superman. And that's the real reason that I, I, I wanted to deconstruct that myth, because I wanted people, again, not to bash the Spartans, but to see them. I think the truth matters for that reason more than anything else. Yeah, and Mike, we've, we've talked uh, privately about this, and I'd love to talk about it publicly now, that how and how much storytelling and accurate storytelling matters to military service members and veterans like you. Talk about that, please. See, so this is a tough one, right? Um, and Sorry, I, we got all serious on you guys. Yeah, but uh, I'll try not to make it dark. I know we have at least one vet in the audience. I don't know how many else here. More is than one. Prior I service mar- we got a few of us. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, look, anyone who's been downrange knows this. I, I was in Iraq three times and responded to a lot of, um, in the Coast Guard, a lot of um, serious domestic disasters like Deepwater Horizon. So what happens when you're confronted with the horror of life? And I mean the horror on steroids, right? What do you do with that, right? How do you process that? Let me ask you a question about that. So many of us who, in one of our episodes, I've been described as being so far at the back end of the spear that I can't even see the feathers. (laughs) So for those of our our, our remphs, our rear echelon, I won't complete it. Um, Let's take... Saving Private Ryan, right? Like, I think Spielberg really tried to give us in the first 15, 20 minutes the horror of what it's like to be in combat, but it's not even close to the real thing. So how do we, how do we both inspire current and future generations of so- soldiers, sailors, airmen, women, and also tell the truth? 
I mean, th- this is the thing, right? You have to, first thing is you can't dumb it down um, and you also can't sugarcoat it. One of the things I think that... Um, By the way, there's nothing we can't dumb down on this podcast, just that's so you know. That's a fair point. But, but, but look, people are smart uh, and I firmly believe that. And when you respect mm. people's both intelligence and their, and their emotional capacity to grapple with reality, they respond to that. Mm. And the reality of it is, is we are asking, I'm, I, I'm a firefighter currently uh, up in the Hudson Valley and like, you know, I'm pulling people out of cars every other weekend and it's, it's ugly stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm honored to do that. Right. I, I, of course it's, it's hard. Of course it's difficult work. Of course it's emotionally taxing, but I chose that. Right. I go out to do that and I want to do that. And I think that that's true of most people who go into service. And so what do you do? You are looking for tools to make sense of that horror, right? And to put it in a context so that it doesn't overwhelm you. And how do you do that? You construct stories around it. This story that we just that um, Alex just told about Caesar, right? It's glib, it's fun, it, it, you know, it may be a little apocryphal, but it's also pretty murdery, right? Like it's <laughs> dark, you know. And the and the fact yeah. of the matter is is that the ancient world, the medieval world, these were violent, violent environments. Uh, you know, we live in currently, it's, it's hard to believe with the war all around us, but we live in the biggest peace dividend in human history. Yes. The casual violence um, that marked the world all the way up to the peace of Westphalia is something that's very, very difficult for modern people to imagine. Even modern people who have been through Afghanistan and Iraq. That process of story construction, that process of, of making meaning around this, which manifests itself most notably in the gallows humor, and I know anyone yeah. who served has known this, is what we do instinctively to try to look at look into the abyss, as Nietzsche called it, and be like, oh yeah, I, I guess I can live with this, right? This means something to me, right? And I think that that's why stories are so critical. In yeah, this. because what are the alternatives, right? I mean, you're you're out there, you're risking your life every day. You have to, I'm projecting onto you. You have to believe that one, you're doing it for a noble cause. Two, you're it completely intertwined with your fellow combatants. And three, it means something in the end. And what, what happens at the end of that meaning? Like, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the pullout of Afghanistan, the last troops that were there? How, how do we make that make sense to them, or can we? It's even, it's even darker. Um, because, even darker, everybody. <laughs> even darker. Hashtag even we'll darker. Make, we'll make it even worse. Is that um, right now we're in a cultural moment where violent service, professional violent service, including the fire services, the police services, is coming in for an unprecedented degree of public criticism, right? And I'm not weighing in on either side of that debate. But I am saying that that, there used to be a cushion, right, a buoying that we received from the public, um, that uh, a sympathy... Kind of a benefit of the doubt. Exactly a great way to put it. And And the almost opposite assumption prevails now, right? And so there is an even greater urgency for us to make meaning out of that, right? Um, I, as a firefighter, you know, like, I, I, don't, I don't know that I really want to post on social media really often about what I do because no. I don't want to deal no. with the comments, you know. And that's, um, and, we, and what do we do? We use these stories to construct it. So what's so amazing about it is, look, whenever you're a writer, you want to pretend that what you do is super important. <laughs> Telling stories really matters. <laughs> But telling stories really matters. Well, it's mattered ever since cave painting, Alex. Um, I, I, all countries have dark days, and I, I dare say that looking back, 
America will regard the withdrawal from Afghanistan as one of them. Amen. But I, I levy no criticism to the men and women on the ground who are doing their very best in incredibly hard circumstances. I think the last people coming out of Afghanistan acquitted themselves with honor. It wasn't yes, those, those individuals. But I wanted to ask you something about this because you were setting out how you have chosen a path that puts you in danger and gives you bad experiences, as have those who've chosen to serve. What, what, do we, what difference does it make to myth-making and storytelling when people haven't chosen? Mm-hmm. Because conscription is not that far past us in our national lives, yours and mine. Yeah. In fact, more recent in yours than, than in mine. So yeah. I wonder what you think about the importance of myth-making and, and, and storytelling we, in those circumstances. And we have people in the room who live in countries that still have it. It's a thing. So this is a really great. This is a really great question, and, it, and it's it's an almost religious question. Wow, this is going to get heavy. Um, <laughs> I, I think of the Messenians, right? So the Messenians. I always go back to ancient Greece and ancient Greek warfare because it's what I what I know. Um, the Messenians, of course, were the population that made up the Helots, which was Sparta's slave caste. Right? These people lived in bondage for generations, um, for, through no fault of their own, born into this servitude. When this yoke was finally thrown off with the assistance of Thebes at the end of. Um, uh, of Sparta's sort of uh, position as a geopolitical power in, in ancient Greece. You see this, um, the Mycenaeans weaving a, their own origin story, which is captured by a writer called Pausanias in his book, A Description of Greece. And like the Caesar story that you just heard from Alex, it could be true, but it feels an awful lot like a myth, right? Mm. When we are confronted in life, look, you get hit by a car, you have to walk with a cane for the rest of your life. It's not your fault. You don't deserve it. But here you are, right? What do you do with that? This construction of myth around that. You know, yes, look, I'm Jewish. We tell this story at Passover every year. Mm -hmm. We were slaves in Egypt, right? This horrible experience. And now here we are celebrating at the Passover dinner table. That myth-making, right, helps us come to grips with this generational historical trauma, right? I can't do anything for for the Jews who were slaves in Egypt, right? Their lives have passed. They lived their suffering. But when we try to grapple with that, that myth-making becomes urgent when you try to construct some way to, to cope with, frankly, something that wasn't, wasn't fair and that you had to suffer through. Tana Halayla Hazir. Well, and doesn't it also, though, Mike, doesn't it also start to give... Okay, let's have some applause for that. We'll edit that shit in. It's like it just happened, right, Jeremy? Um, <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> doesn't it also give some ability of future generations who have to deal with, let's face it, probably at least as horrific things as our predecessors and our generation, uh, roadmap for some guidance on how you go from day to day, how you take the next step when you're in that horror, looking to the past. Yes, exactly that. Look, <laughs> life's rough sometimes, right? And and whatever you need to do to galvanize yourself. So it was funny when on Twitter because I'm sort of I've built my reputation on debunking myths about Spartans. And somebody sent me a shot of a Ukrainian member of the Azov Brigade, and he had the mole on Labe. This is the famous "Come and take it," you know, defiant shout of the Spartan king Leonidas, which is a. Probably not true. Wasn't and Leonidas in his 60s in reality? He was in, in his 60s. And also, he said, come and take it, meaning his weapons. And then Xerxes did. He <laughs> cut off his head and he stuck it on a pole and he took his weapon. So maybe this is not the cry we want to be, be advertising. Be careful what you wish for, right. yeah. So somebody said, all right, well, this guy's wearing this sticker on his body arm. He goes, what do you think about that? He expected me to you know, say, well, this guy's an idiot or something like that. And I said, look, Ukraine is in an existential crisis. 
if putting the sticker on his body armor is what gets this guy out on the battlefield yeah. shooting at Russians, yes, great. Mm. You know, I don't want to bust that myth. You know, yeah. look, life is hard. It's hard. And, and using myths and using stories as to galvanize ourselves to get up in the morning and to face that hardship is one of the most glorious things that human beings do, right? You know, we have precious few advantages over, we don't have porcupine quills and we can't fly, <laughs> but we can tell stories and that helps propel us forward. And I'm always going to be in favor of that. Yeah, fair. Cheers. Although porcupine quills, and I would like to have porcupine quills and fly. I don't want to fly. I believe there's some people at MIT that are working on that. Thank you. Human porcupine uh, symbiosis and and fusion. But, Mike, what, if anything, do you take from not just Alex's story about Caesar means it, which is what it's called, chapter 54, whatever chapter is in this great book, Lessons of History? 55. Um, 55. That's what I thought. I should have just gone with that. Hitler, Mein Kampf, Putin, speeches, Iranians, speeches. Why is it so hard for us in the West to believe ISIS? Why is it so hard for us to believe what they say and act on it? To believe what Putin and Hitler say? Any of them. I mean, they've telegraphed what they're going to do, and they're doing it. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. uh, Putin maintained for years that the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the the collapse of the the Soviet Soviet Union. Union. I mean, considering the 20th century, (laughs) yeah, that's going (laughs) what what a worldview. But he was clear about it. Yeah, so this is something I grapple with, too. And that Ukraine doesn't exist. And I I expect, Alex, this is probably an experience you have, too, and is that so half of my life is lived in in armed service and crisis response. And half of my life is lived in intellectual circles and writers. And the thing I often struggle with, when you serve in law enforcement, when you serve in crisis response, you develop what we call cop's eyes, where you see threats everywhere. And when Putin went into Ukraine, the first thing out of my mouth was, we we cannot lose in Ukraine. He will absolutely, he will go to Poland next. He is not going to stop. Moldova, Poland. And when I sat down with my cop and firefighter buddies, they were all like, yup. And when I sat down with my writer buddies in Brooklyn, they were like, no, oh, you know, uh, right? And, and so it really is, um, I think it is a difference between how you are uh, conditioned to grapple with, yeah. with stress and with a crisis. Um, and, and in some ways, look, this is why we have a thing called PTSD. In some ways, it's damaging to mm-hmm. confront that kind of evil all the time in your thinking. And, so, and, and that sort of insulation that people do for themselves is a way they protect themselves. But I'll be frank, you know, I don't ever want to give that up um, because I do think that having that ability to confront it directly. And, and the answer to your question is that because the people that are writing think pieces in Salon.com and in the op-ed page of the New York Times, yes. not always, C.J. Shivers, uh, yeah. people do not know him. He's a former Marine, also John Ismay, both write for the Times. Yeah. They're incredible, uh, and they're both uh, veteran war fighters. Yeah, check it out. Um, but I, I do think that most of the people who are writing these think pieces that are pontificating this they're not fighters. <laughs> Look, there is there, going to get on my high horse now. Mm-hmm. There has been this worldview almost my entire career. So I started in the intelligence services in 1985. By 1997, let's say, there's this worldview that everyone's going to play nice. War is over. History is over. All we have to do is bolster these international institutions, footnote, 
North Korea in 2022 took over the nuclear proliferation yep. subcommittee of the United Nations. Good times. Good times. And it's all going to be fine. And it's just not. We, you, we do not get to decide when the war is over, whether it's the war on terrorism or Putin. Yep. Off my high horse, Alex. I hesitate to mention a, a revered figure in, in American politics in America as a, as a guest, but um, I, I thought that Hey Mitch, the 1980s called, they want their foreign policy back God, um, from, from President-to-be Obama to his opponents in, um, in the debates before uh, the presidential elections um, w- w- in 2008 was um, profoundly mistaken and, uh, and actually needless. He just brought, he, there was a good line, yeah. he brought it, he brought it, he decided yeah. to, to bring that up. Yeah. And I thought that whatever you thought more generally, and of course President Obama was a, was a vitally important figure in your national life, it seems to me, as an outsider for, for important symbolic reasons mm-hmm. and reasons of a society maturing. But God, he got that wrong. I mean, it was extraordinary how wrong that was. And it was 100% gratuitous. Uh, my recollection of this actually was that something came up in that debate in 2012 that triggered uh, uh, Pres- oh, President Obama's statement. No, he, this was a hit line. It was planned. It was going to be said no matter what, mm-hmm. and it could not have been more wrong. We'll put in the show notes the clip of this. Obama's debating Romney. It's the 2012 election, and Obama uses this hit line. Uh, hey, the 1980s called, and they want their foreign policy back. And because Romney had said Russia is the greatest threat of our time. Whatever your politics are, imagine how the world would be different if people had believed Romney. But I do think, so it is dark, right? So what, we are, what, are, we, what are we doing here? We're confronting the fact that, um, look, human history is bloody. Humans are violent. Um, and, that, uh, and that there is darkness in our history. But I do want to say, this is all occurring, as tough as this is, in the context of the greatest period of peace yeah. Yeah. in human history. And as rough as Ukraine is uh, on all of us, um, this is not World War II, right? Like, this is a very, very different experience. I can't predict where it's going to go, but there is a lot of reason for hope. And there is a lot of uh, – and look, we certainly cannot look away from the darkness uh, of violence. And I do think that, like, I agree that, that we want their, they want their foreign policy back does seem, in retrospect, like a really bad, <laughs> bad perspective. Um, but I also – I don't want to completely succumb to the idea that we will never escape – the, the darkness of that Caesar story, right? I do think w- there, there are some things that are changing and we're seeing it. And believe it or not, you're living in it. And one of the greatest ways to realize that you're living in it is to turn off your phone and not read the news for a few hours and go for a walk. Yeah, you know, 100%. touch grass. Yeah. Like, because you, you really are living in, a, in a, a time of incredible plenty and of incredible safety, historically speaking. Well said. Yeah, yeah and, and in my darker moments, I wonder if we've just been fortunate to be in that bubble, right, between World War II and the future where we got lucky and things were good and our children are going to face something much darker. But in my less dark moments, I fall back on Churchill's assessment of Americans, which I think can apply to all of us globally which was he said Americans can always be counted on to do the right thing after they exhaust all other options. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope this is where humanity is today. And special thanks to Mike Cole. Yeah, special thank thanks to the Bond Bar. Thanks, special guys. thanks to Blue Run Bourbon. Great to be with you. Thank you Thank very much. you, everybody. We're out. Cheers. Cheers.
Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Core, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers.